Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches, and we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Samoma Laws with Restore or Retreat. And it is officially December 1st, which means a lot of things. It means we're entering the last month of 2020. It means we're officially no longer in the Atlantic hurricane season for 2020. Um, it means we've had quite a few things occur, including Thanksgiving, since our last show. It's cold, too. It's cold here in Louisiana. We've got our sweaters on. So it's good to be back with you. And thanks for bearing with us during the hiatus. I hope you and your family had a, a nice, restful, and, and safe Thanksgiving. Um, I've been eating a lot of turkey gumbo. I don't know about you, Simone. <laughs> um, my sister's the to- turkey gumbo maker, as, as you know, and um, not a huge fan, so I'll leave it to you guys. But I, I do I do want to address the fact that we simply gave up in November. <laughs> we had enough of a lot of things, and so I hope your batteries are recharged too. I am recharged, and, you know, I think we kind of protested. We're like, you know what? We're just going to wait till hurricane season's over and then we'll come back because it's been a lot, right? And and I know, um, you know, folks are still recovering and we've kind of emphasized our friends out in Southwest that there will be a long road to recovery for them after, you know, multiple hurricanes. But, um, you know, we've looked forward at hurricane season with our friend Steve Caparata um, with WFB, who's a meteorologist and he helped us understand kind of, you know, what the forecasters were saying. I will say I did notice that Steve and his family went on a lovely vacation recently, which is <laughs> they <too> gave up. <laughs> very well deserved. And I'm thinking about our other meteorologist friend, Margaret Orr, who I, I hope is off to a lovely vacation as, uh, as well. We, we owe our, our meteorologists a debt of gratitude for how hard they've worked for us this season and keeping us informed. But Wanted to take some time. I mean, it was such an unprecedented season in so many ways. And I think we all felt that, but we wanted to bring on someone who has really helped me navigate this season and understand, you know, all of the new science that's coming out about hurricanes and climate change and sort of these extremes that we're starting to experience. And so I'm so excited to welcome to the show to help, you know, all of our listeners look back on the 2020 hurricane season, but then look into some of the science, um, you know, that can sometimes be a little confusing. So with that, I'd like to welcome Alyssa Ako, who's a senior client climate scientist at Environmental Defense Fund. Um, welcome to Delta Dispatches, Alyssa. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I, of course, have had the pleasure of working with you, you know, this last hurricane season. I w- Pleasure of working with you, not pleasure of working, you know, in the <laughs> chaos of the hurricane season. But yeah, um, but tell us, you know, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be a climate, a senior climate scientist at EDF. Sure. So I knew when I was in college that I wanted an advanced degree in climate science. I was studying climate change, but on the undergraduate level and. When I was earning my PhD, I realized that I wanted to pursue a career at the interface of science, communication, and policy. Um, So when I had the opportunity to work at Environmental Defense Fund as a postdoc, I really jumped on that chance and went straight after graduate school 
to EDF. And through that opportunity, I was able to directly apply scientific research to real world applications. And so that was seven years ago now, um, but I loved it so much that I was able to stay on as a full-time climate scientist and have been there ever since. Um, and now I'm, I'm a senior climate scientist and I lead our climate science team. Well, certainly, you know, um, no shortage of, of work as we've seen just, you know, this year alone. But what is your day to day like in that role? I would say that about half my time is pursuing original research. So that's very similar to as if I was a scientist at a research institution where I analyze data and I run models, I collaborate with external scientists, I write and publish peer reviewed articles. But the other half of my time is really providing scientific guidance to a lot of my non-scientist colleagues who work in the trenches of policy and communication and that component of climate change. Yes. And as someone in the trenches, I can say we very much appreciate your work and contributions and making sure we get things right, because, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there and sometimes it gets confusing. So having you there to kind of help us understand what science is saying and that we're actually communicating it accurately is so important. Um, so we've relied on you, uh, as I mentioned, over the last several months to, to navigate this um, extremely active hurricane season. It was the most active, in fact, on record. Um, as we all know too well here in Louisiana with five landfalls and eight times being in the dreaded cone of uncertainty. So any, you know, general reflections for you from you on what kind of this season's been like? You know, it was both shocking and unsurprising at the same time. Unsurprising because we knew going into the season in particular that it would be more active. Um, this is because it's a La Nina year, so we typically have strong winds that prevent many storms from developing, but during a La Nina year, those, those wind patterns get a lot weaker, and so storms have the opportunity to grow and develop in a way that maybe they wouldn't in another season. So we did expect to have more storms this season, and as we know with continuing climate change, storms are getting stronger and are intensifying more rapidly. And so because this year, you know, was also a very warm year on record, we also expected to continue to see these trends of stronger storms and storms that intensify more rapidly. And so to see that come to fruition is also not that surprising. But at the same time, living through this season and seeing so many records broken and a new threat seemingly emerge weekly was really quite alarming for everyone. Yeah, and I mean, you've there have been a lot of scientific studies that have come out, you know, talking about the connection between climate change and hurricanes. And you wrote a very informative blog uh, a few months back. Um, and one of the points that you made is that in some cases, the science is very clear, right, on how climate change is impacting hurricanes, while in other cases, it's less so. Um, so talk us through, you know, what we know, what is less certain um, about hurricanes and climate change. And I guess maybe let's just start with the formation of the storms. Sure. So climate change in theory can influence all aspects of hurricanes, and that includes the formation, but also its strength to its track to its damages. But as you said, our scientific understanding of all these different connections really varies depending on the component of the hurricane we're talking about. And so for the formation of hurricanes, 
the relationship to climate change can be very complicated. And this is due in part because hurricane formation in general can be very complicated. There's a lot of factors that go into whether or not a hurricane develops. develops. But beyond this, climate change can also lead to opposing effects that at the same time can increase and decrease the likelihood of a storm forming. And so an example of this is that we have warmer waters from climate change. Um, that's very clear. That's something we're seeing. And that would make storms more likely to form because they form in warm waters. But at the same time, climate change is also leading to changes in wind patterns that in some cases can prevent a storm from forming. And so that's an example of climate change influencing hurricane formation, but in competing ways. And so in that sense, it's very complicated and it's not totally clear which one of those would win out either now or in the future in terms of changing the overall amount of storms that form. And is it true that I wrote in terms of the formation that aerosols also have a role or have, you know, impacted how storms are forming? Yeah, so another tricky component with the formation of storms and whether or not it happens is that it's not just the increasing greenhouse gas emissions that are playing a role in modifying Earth's energy balance. There are natural emissions such as dust, but there's also human emissions of what we call aerosols, which are liquid or solid particles that are suspended in the atmosphere, um, which are like dust, but have human sources. And those also play a role in modifying Earth's energy balance. And scientists have found that in the North Atlantic, in particular, we have seen an increase in the overall amount of storms that are forming since the 1970s, but that a lot of this is just attributed to the fact that we are reducing our emissions of these aerosols, which had actually um, reflected a lot of the sunlight away from reaching the ocean. And so now that we are reducing a lot of these aerosol emissions, more of that sunlight is reaching the surface and that is helping storms form. And so there's that component too, which also complicates the picture of hurricane formation and its relationship to climate change. So many factors. Um, and then in terms of strength, you wrote that the science is more clear, correct? Yeah, for the connection between storm strength and hurricanes, the physics is just far more simple. So you have warmer waters and you have more moisture in the atmosphere. And both of these components provide fuel for storms to grow more powerful. And this is exactly what we are seeing happen to storms. The proportion of storms that reach major hurricane status is increasing. Yeah, and we saw that with um, you know a number of storms from Laura to Zeta to Sally, Ada, and Iota that rapidly intensified. In fact, this season there were 10 in total that rapidly intensified which tied the record for um, rapid intensification from 1995. Um, and, and part of your explainer that you wrote, um, well, you did a video on this, but you said, you know, it means you could go to bed anticipating a category one storm and then wake up to a major hurricane. So, you know, that's certainly a concern when you think about, you know, the time needed for people to evacuate or if someone's expecting a weaker storm and they decide to ride it out and then being surprised with a major hurricane. So that definitely is a concerning trend that we've seen. Yeah, that's happened this season and it happened a few seasons ago with Hurricane Maria, where within 24 hours, a storm went from a category one to a category five. 
I mean, that's just, that's incredible. And that's something we're seeing more and more of. And scientists have connected it to climate change through just having warmer waters that allow the storms to just become stronger much faster in the absence of any condition that would be preventing that from happening. They just have more fuel to draw on. So if you have weaker winds, they can just churn up and get more and more powerful within a matter of days. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a trend. And I think that, you know, we'll have to think about that in terms of what that means in terms of monitoring storms um, earlier, you know, making decisions about safety evacuations, all those sorts of things. Um, As for the track of storms, you said that it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I think in general, air circulation patterns and how they change with climate change is just more complicated. So that affects not just hurricanes, but really any kind of storm track, um, winter storms, storms in different parts of the world. It's just a more complicated area of research versus just straight temperature changes in the atmosphere and the ocean. Um, so there's there's part of that with trying to understand how hurricane tracks are changing. There's just a component in that in general, it's just more complicated physics. Um, but we scientists have found um, some connections between hurricane tracks and climate change. For example, um, there's evidence of slower moving storms. Um, Some of the changes that we're seeing with air circulation patterns is a jet stream that meanders more and it's a lot more wavy and this can lead to stalled weather patterns. And so what this means for hurricanes is that they can kind of they take a lot longer to move on out of, you know, the location that they had been in. And we saw this, for example, with Hurricane Harvey, Harvey, where it just sat over Houston for a few days. And so it can dump even more and more rain. And so that's something that scientists have been able to connect in some part to climate change, but it's, you know, very active area of research. And another area of research is just the range of hurricanes where they can develop and and extend through. That range seems to be expanding forward. So we're seeing more hurricanes in different parts of the world, and we don't call them hurricanes all over the world, but these types of tropical storms are reaching um, higher latitudes that they had than they had been before human-caused climate change really became as intense as it is now. Yeah. And I mean, to your point about storms um, kind of moving more slowly um, and kind of sitting in areas like we saw, I guess, with Harvey, there was a study that came out, I think, a few months back in Nature that actually showed um, that climate change is causing storms to stay stronger for longer periods of time. That as a result, drives impacts further inland and into areas beyond the the coast. So tell us a little bit about that study and, and some of its implications. Yeah, that's a really interesting study because usually hurricane studies focus on the hurricane before it makes landfall. But what this study did was look at after a hurricane makes landfall, what happens to it. And the study found that the decay rate, this the hurricane, it gets its fuel from the ocean water. So once it's over land, it loses a lot of its power and slowly disintegrates and moves off and, and kind of disappears. And so what this study looked at was how fast that process happens for that hurricane once it's made landfall to decay. And they found that a 
typical hurricane in the 1960s, for example, would lose about 75% of its intensity within the first day after landfall. But now it would only lose about 50% of its intensity. And so these storms are staying stronger for longer periods of time. And these scientists found that that was directly connected to the temperature of the ocean before the storm made landfall. And these sea surface temperatures we know are increasing due to human-caused climate change. So there seems to be a, um, a pretty solid connection there in terms of how climate change is affecting how long these storms stay around after they, they hit land. Yeah, I think we saw that to an extent with Hurricane Laura here in Louisiana, where, you know, it was moving into northern Louisiana and Arkansas as a category three storm in, in some in some cases. So um, truly, you know, uh, you know, just very terrifying and, and something we need to think about, you know, even in areas well beyond the coast. Um, another area of kind of climate science that you've written a little bit about is how um, climate change is fueling more intense downpours, uh, heavier rainfall. Um, as you mentioned, we saw that with Hurricane Harvey and then even to an extent Hurricane Sally this year. So what does the science say about that? And am I correct? And I think I read that that's particularly true here in the southeastern United States. Yeah, so we're definitely seeing more moisture in the atmosphere all, all across the globe due to climate change. And this is there's a very straightforward reason for this. In a warmer world, you have more evaporation, and so you have more moisture that's in the atmosphere. And so what that means is when it rains or even when it snows, you can have more precipitation that falls during those storms. And so for rainfall during hurricanes, that's especially true. And you're seeing more rainfall during the storms that are resulting from these hurricanes. And just in general, in terms of heavy downpours in the U.S., many parts of the U.S. are just experiencing more rainfall in their heavy downpours. And so that is especially true in the southeastern U.S. I think there's around 30 percent more heavy rainfall in these heavy downpours. And, um, and that's since around the 1950s, but it's even more true in the Northeast US where we have around 50% more rainfall in these heavy downpours than we did several decades ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, for us and our work thinking about, you know, the importance of coastal restoration and resilience on the coast, but also you need to think further inland as well and flooding to rivers and streams and, you know, what can be done um, more up uh, uh, north inland to, to help those communities deal with that amount of rainfall. Um, few more questions. This is all so enlightening, Alyssa. So thank you for sticking with us. But okay, so how active a season is? We had a record-breaking 31 tropical and subtropical depressions, 30 named storms, which beat out the 2005 record, of course, that had hurricanes Katrina, Rita, and others. Um, are there any studies discussing whether climate change is contributing to more active seasons? So the best understanding, scientific understanding to date, suggests that the more active seasons that we've had have not been due to greenhouse gas-induced climate change. They've it's because of the changes in the aerosols, which are connected to climate change, but that's very different than what we talk about in general with 
climate change and, and greenhouse gas warming. Um, so in some sense, yes, there have been studies that show that we're having more active seasons, um, but the main factors driving that are not human-caused climate change. And going forward, the best available science suggests that we expect around the same amount of storms worldwide every year, um, maybe even a few less. That's kind of the best available science, but at the same time, we expect the proportion of storms that are strong to increase. So even though the overall amount and number of storms will stay roughly the same in the future, more of these storms will be strong. That's a helpful uh, way to kind of, you know, encapsulate all of, of the, you know, uh, the trends there. So uh, we went through a lot, um, you know, certainly there's a lot more on the blog on EDF's website that folks can read about in terms of the science of, uh, cl of climate change and how they, it's influencing hurricanes. Um, I think we do want to end on a more hopeful and positive note just for this episode and the season. So, I mean, you know, of course, we're confronting, you know, more intense storms. This has been a very active season. Um, you know, we're thinking about all the different trends you've outlined in the latest science. But at the same time, like being at the heart of this and like studying this every day, I mean, what what gives you hope? Or are there things that you feel, um, you know, that, uh, you know, kind of help you continue in your role despite kind of some of these worrying trends? Sure. So I think what gives me the most hope is that we have the knowledge to know what to do, and we also have the tools to act. And so it's this combination of having this knowledge of understanding what the causes of the problem are, which is important to knowing how to solve the problem, and then also knowing that we have the tools in our toolbox to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, to prepare for the impacts that we anticipate will happen, all of those exist. And so that's what gives me tremendous hope that we know what we need to do and we have the tools to do it. We just need to go ahead and act and come together to make it happen. But I have tremendous hope that that we will get there. Yeah, I love how you you put that about, you know, um, having the knowledge of, of what is happening and what we need to do. And even in the season, it just feels like so many new studies came out about hurricanes that, you know, more and more science is developing and it's giving us greater knowledge about what we need to do to act. So that certainly is, is hopeful. I do have to tell you, Alyssa, we have a tradition on Delta Dispatches, which is a fun question. Um, and, you know, Simone and I are huge fans of meteorologists on this show. Um, I hear that you're, you are a fan of meteorologists yourself. Um, and I'm curious, Simone and I joke about what happens when an A-Bear and a Terrio walk into a radio station. So I believe uh, if it's okay, your husband is a meteorologist, correct? So what is the conversation? I know that. You should have read that. That should have been in the intro. What if, I can't believe you waited so long to, you knew that I was going to harp on that yeah. entire interview. So what is, what is a climate scientist and a meteorologist talk about at the dinner table uh, as it relates to, you know, our, our weather world and, and climate change and or do you not talk about jobs at all it's probably like let's never move to louisiana they have, <laughs> it never gets cold and they always have hurricanes no that's that's a good one we do talk about where in the u.s we would not want to live 
Because, <laughs> like, there's, you know, Tornado Valley, and then there's the hurricanes in the south, and then, you know, not really weather-related, but earthquakes over to the west. And so we're pretty happy with where we live in, like, the northeast mid-Atlantic area. But it's it's fun being married to a meteorologist. We joke that we cover it all between the two of us. The short-term hourly weather forecast so like what's going to happen in a hundred years from now so makes for an interesting conversation for sure well if we have any questions you know in the short term or long term we know which household to ring up um so yeah yeah we'll, we'll have them both on next yeah. time and we can do his and her answers so. well Alyssa, thank you so much again um i can't uh, express my gratitude to you for helping you know, all of us navigate some of these con- sometimes confusing and, and questions that aren't exactly clear. But I think it's important that we, you know, lead with the science and really understand what's happening and having someone with your expertise and knowledge really helping us navigate that is so useful. So appreciate your coming on. I hope you get a little bit of a break after hurricane season two, because I know you've been very busy. So I um, hope the rest of the year goes well for you. And um, yeah, and, and we'd love to have you back on anytime. Sounds great. Thanks so much. All right. Well, it is time for our Coastal Voice of the Week. Um, And this week is from uh, Lori and Lake Charles. And Lori says, I am a fourth generation Southwest Louisiana resident, and I hope that this wonderful, beautiful sportsman's paradise state of Louisiana is around for the fifth and sixth generations of my family. Um, Well, we couldn't agree with you more, Lori, and we hope that you and your family are doing well out in Lake Charles. Um, just a reminder, you can go and add your own coastal voice at any time. Go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast and, um, you know, share your reasons for loving our coast and wanting to restore and protect it. Um, and with that, we're shifting gears in our next segment um, from climate change and hurricanes to City Park, which is one of my favorite spots in all of Louisiana. Um, we'll be right back after the break on Delta Dispatches. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Aber with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And I really enjoyed that conversation with EDF senior climate scientist, Alyssa Ako. She's just, you know, such a fountain of knowledge. And like we were talking about during the break, um, you know, a scientist who really knows how to communicate and kind of get that science across to to the lay people like yourself and I, Simone. I thought, yeah, you're right. I thought she was so clear when people like me can understand her. Yeah. <laughs> I always appreciate that. So um, she was great to have one. I'm looking forward to our next guest, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to quickly recap um, for the Coastal Stat of the Week, you know, reiterating how unprecedented this last hurricane season was. We had 31 tropical and subtropical depressions and 30 named storms. Um, It was the most active on record, surpassing even the 2005 season. Um, It also was only the second season in history that required use of the Greek alphabet to name storms. I think we got to IOTA. And then the 2020 season had more storms make landfall than in any prior season, a total of 12, five of which hit Louisiana. 
Um, and we were, of course, in the cone of certainty for eight storms. Um, so uh, 10 storms experienced rapid intensification, which tied the record from 1995. So let's hope for no more repeats. Let's keep our minds and our hearts and our hands helping those people that are in Southwest Louisiana and other parts of the, the coast that are still recovering. Um, you can still go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash hurricane relief um, to find out ways to support the people in the local community. So we're yes. excited to move on from this season now. <laughs> Unprecedented, right? The, the word of 2020, but I'm always glad when you remind folks about helping our neighbors and friends that were impacted by the storm, even though it was overwhelming for so many. And most of us ended up in a bullseye at some point. We, we still have some friends and neighbors that will still take years to recover. And so thank you for always remembering that shock. Um, one thing I'm very glad to talk about is escapes, right? And, and we have one of the most wonderful escapes right here in our very own city. And it's also no stranger to big impacts. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Meg Adams, the Director of Environmental Stewardship at City Park. Welcome to the show, Meg. Thank you so much. I am flattered to be invited to participate. So I told Meg this, we happened to be on a panel together for a women's summit for Junior League of New Orleans about conservation and stewardship. And I told Meg right off the bat, I was like, mm, by the way, Meg, we have a podcast and I'm going to need you to be on. And so Jacques was so excited um, because good thing you don't charge for hardly anything at City Park because Jock would be broke. <laughs> He's there all the time. And during the break, Meg even gave him a volunteer job. So we'll talk about that at the end of the show. <laughs> but Meg, since I've had the pleasure of, of being on a panel with you and know a little bit about your background, why don't you tell our, our listeners about, uh, about yourself and then talk about um, what you do at City Park? Um, well, thank you very much. I am um... I am a civil engineer by uh, degree from Tulane University, and I did design work for a long time before I got more into construction management. And I've worked on a lot of different projects around town, um, the St. Charles Streetcar Line, um, the Port of New Orleans cruise ship terminals, the Noma Sculpture Garden, and um, I find, and the Audubon Zoo. And then I came to the park in 2007 after Katrina as a construction manager and uh, headed up there rebuilding after Katrina. Um, so like everybody else for several years after that, we were just in crisis mode and we were just trying to put everything back together. But then after a few years, we started thinking about how can we do things in a more sustainable and, um, you know, environmentally friendly manner. So that's when we sort of expanded my role and started a green team. Um, so my job titles changed a few times, but um, that's that's how we started with the green stuff. And then I took that over uh, and quit doing construction management. But, but now, because of everything that's happened with COVID, I'm doing both of those things again. So I I love that you've left your fingerprint all over, <laughs> or or your your PE stamp or something, right all over. <laughs> all over the city. So that's pretty neat to to understand your background. And I heard somebody say the other day about, um, about the park emerging after Katrina and, and being better and stronger and, and this kind of renaissance right behind that. But I want to talk about the start of city park a little bit. And, um, 
you know, it, the park really came out of something pretty terrible too, the, the great depression. So what city parks link to that? Well, um, anybody that's spent time here has probably noticed some of these iconic symbols around the park that, um, like the bridges have artwork on them. And, um, Enrique, Enrique Alferez is an artist that has done a, a lot of the relief sculptures on buildings and, and stuff. And the park has been around for a long time. I mean, it was founded in the late 1800s. Um, and it, they took over more and more land and gradually toward in around the 1920s, it got to be about the size that it currently is, which is 1300 acres, but they, it, it wasn't, it didn't have a master plan. So they put together a master plan, um, a multi-million dollar master plan at that point, but had no money to do, you know, to implement any of the projects. Um, and then the Great Depression came along and um, there was a lot of money available through the Works Project Administration. And the city park um, representatives went and lobbied for that money. And that's how a lot of the projects got funded that they had already had in their master plan. So, um, th you know, we had over 20,000 construction workers through that decade. And a lot of what they did was without heavy equipment or anything. They like they dug all the lagoons in City Park. They're, those are man-made. Those are not natural lagoons. They dug them by hand. And um, the uh, Tad Gormley Stadium, there are pictures showing people wheeling wheelbarrows of concrete up ramps to build that stadium in the WPA. Um, the golf courses, you know, we had four golf courses before Katrina. They were all built by hand. Um, the Pops Fountain, the a big rose garden in the botanical garden. So and a lot of the streets and stuff were built during the WPA. And, and they're very iconic structures you know the, the artwork on them is really neat and the old brick and everything they're they're some of my favorite buildings in the park it's kind of neat to to hear those little stories right I feel like that's a, a yes w-y-e-s <laughs> you oh, know yeah. city park so I love that though because I think I think so many people probably don't fully appreciate the history behind City Park. And, you know, I, I read that it was a $12 million investment. And, and today, you know, the projects that Jacques and I deal with are, are hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of projects. But to think what $12 million was in the time of the Great Depression and the fact that it took people years to work on, it's really, really interesting. So um, it's City Park's history is marked by another significant event, as is the rest of the city, right? Talk about Katrina and the failure of the levee system flooded almost the entirety of of that, what is it, did you say, um, how many acres? So 95% was in floodwaters for weeks. So, mm -hmm. Meg, talk a little bit about that really tough time for the park. Well, obviously, it was... Um, terrible. I think at one point we only had 13 employees and I, I was not with the park at that time, but it just sounds like it was, you know, horrific. And, um, I had actually done the, um, project for Noma, the sculpture garden, and it too was flooded. You know, it, it, it was just a really bad thing. So, but amazingly enough, similar to the WPA, um, the park had just put together a master plan 
to sort of move a lot of stuff around, to build new buildings. Um, it, they had just finalized it before Katrina. So really, they had a, a blueprint um, to go back. And I mean, there were so many different funding sources, and I, I can talk about some of those. But, uh, you know, when FEMA came in, it, it, we knew exactly what we wanted to do um, to make things better, to make it a world-class park. So I think that went a long way um, with fundraisers. You know, it, it wasn't like we were struggling to figure out what to do next. It was like, yeah, we, we've got a plan. We know we want to, for example, move our tennis center. We um, want to uh, repurpose two of our golf courses, things like that. So we had it all put together, and it was um, – it. it took a lot of the stress out of the decision making. So so moral of the story, be very wary when City Park develops a new master plan. <laughs> no, all kidding aside, Meg. After Katrina, I mean we saw it throughout the city, right? But but the public really responded to City Park and helping out and I remember the Katrina, was it the Katrina, Katrina crew and right dedicated volunteers, people just responded um, in a way that that probably was a huge shift in, in kind of stewardship and, and conservation in the city. Oh, it it was amazing. I, I wish I had the number of tens of thousands of people who came in and did work. There were people coming. I mean, up till just a few years ago, people would bring big groups, of, you know, from out of state. Colleges would come in and um, help out. And there was a group, um, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but we didn't have any lawnmowers, and not the machines or the people. And people uh, came in and mowed the grass and they called themselves the Morons. <laughs> and they mowed... They would just come out with their personal riding lawnmowers. And, People and love to cut the grass, Meg. It's very I, calming, very soothing. It, it is. I, I do my own grass at home, so I, I know how uh, relaxing it is. But yeah, there were and people giving money and um, so many foundations came through. Um, you know, like I said, we had a lot of big projects that we, we wanted to do and um, Trust for Public Land came through and funded Big Lake, and we had um, the Great Lawn was funded by Goldring Woldenberg. Uh, the Tolmas Foundation, you know, has funded several big construction projects. It's just, you know, but there've been a lot of individual donations, and it's just been, you know, millions of dollars of people sending in their little checks, and and it's all of it is helpful and we couldn't do any of it without the public, but, um, and people supporting, you know, different things like the garden show every year and coming to the Lark in the park and, and celebration, the Oaks and things, you know, there, the public has just been fantastic. Um, and continue to be fantastic. It's because there's truly is something for everybody there, right? You know, there's something for, you know, young people and little people and, and grownups and adults. And, you know, it's just really something for everybody. But Meg, I have to imagine that 2020 has been really tough on the park as well. Um, it has not been pretty. Um, <laughs> it's been good people. and bad, just like the rest of 2020, right? People well, have been using the park more than ever, but yes. that also means a stretch on resources that, that are really short supply. Right. Well, you know, the park 
has to um, cover 85% of our operating expenses. We, we are not technically a city park and we don't get operating funds from the city or the state. So we have to generate our own. And, um, you know, we do that through things like booking our facilities for weddings and stuff, which obviously those kind of things aren't happening right now. We have a lot of festivals out here, you know, Voodoo Fest. Um, we make, you know, we make money off of that. And uh, like I said, our, our fundraisers like Lark in the Park and Martini Madness, all of that stuff has been canceled. So the the park has um, let most of the part-time people go, almost all of them, and 30% of the full-time staff. So at a time when we've had probably double to triple the number of people using the park, we have that fewer people actually working here. So, you know, we've had to double up on on our um, job duties and stuff uh, quite a bit. But people have been donating for that too. It's just been fantastic. Um, and people, we have groups of people that want to come in and help pick up the trash and stuff, which we've had trouble keeping up with, with all the people in the park. There's also a lot more trash in the park. But um, it, so it's, there's been definitely um, a lot more people in the park, but a lot more people supporting the park too. Um, and it's been wonderful. And y'all have, y'all have had several projects still go on, right? Like um, you have several, I remember during our panel, you talked about, um, you know, improvements to the lagoons and some things like that. So, so let's talk about some of the improvements that y'all have going on at the okay. park. Okay. Well, um, well, we, we have a lot going on. A lot of this was, um, you know, the wheels were turning before the pandemic. Um, so one thing I'm really excited about is we're getting ready to start the extension of the uh, Marconi bike path. I, anybody who bikes and walks around here knows that <laughs> you, you we've can't got... see him, Meg, but Jacques is very excited about oh, it. <laughs> well, Jacques, I think it's going to start right after the first of the year. We have a contractor on board and uh, we're just trying to get everything lined up so we can start that work. Um, so that'll, that'll be great. You know, it'll get people off, off of Marconi, which I ride my bike on Marconi sometimes and it's pretty scary, but um, so that is, is in progress right now. We are, um, you know, the thing I'm really excited about is the Wisner tract. I don't know if either one of y'all participated in any of our public hearings about that last year, but um, it's the area that's between 610 and Harrison, and it's um, to the east of Grodat. Are you familiar with that area? So it's, that was one of the golf courses before Katrina, and that's kind of the last hundred acres of area in the park that we haven't done anything to after um, since Katrina. So we went through a process of uh, public hearings where we got input and we're finalizing the master plan. And it's not going to be, I know a lot of people use it scared that it's going to turn into, you know, a, a very um, organized environment, but that's not the intention. It's, it's, you know, we've got several ecologists on the design team and stuff. We're, we're trying to, um, improve the habitats and to 
improve access to the lagoons so that people can get get in there and um, you know you actually get to the water. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but in some areas the water's only about six inches deep through that space. So we want to just make it a better place and make it um, a, you know a wonderful place for people to go and relax and enjoy outdoors and birding and that kind of stuff. So that's, I mean, that's not going under construction anytime soon, but that's, that's in the works in terms of planning. Um, and I know that Jacques wants to talk about Couturier Forest. I can give you Always. some scoop. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, we are, if you tried to go this week, Jacques, you may have noticed that the, the gates are locked to the parking lot because we are putting in a permeable parking lot and some rain gardens in that area where the gravel parking lot is. So um, that'll take a few months, but it's um, it's going to be a lot better when it opens. So in the meantime, you can, the forest is not closed, but um, you can park over on the Mona Lisa Drive, which is just to the east of the bridge there, or park across the street at Scout Island um, and just you know, I ask people not to block the bike lane along Harrison, but you can still definitely get into the forest, just not that parking lot. So that's a good project. And and that's a project that we're doing with funding from the um, DOTD. Uh, we've, we've gotten pretty good at applying for grants on these big projects. And, um, you know, it's, there are a lot of ways to get funding for good environmental projects and we're taking advantage of it. Well, that is so exciting. And I mean, I, I do, I will say that um, I love Couturier Forest, but so does my dog, Winnie, the chow chow. She's, she's very fluffy. And in the summers of New Orleans, it's not easy to find a place that feels a little cool, right? So it's one of our favorite places that's completely shaded where we can walk her. And, you know, as far as the park, whether it's you know, a place that feels wild, like the forest, um, or, you know, that's beautifully manicured, like some of the lawns and the gardens. It just, City Park really has something for everyone. And I, I bike in it, I kayak in it, I hike through the forest, I hang out in the lawns, I go to the gardens and the museums and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, for me, I think the park really is kind of the heart of New Orleans and such a special place that we all are so fortunate to have in our city. Um, so continuing on with the goodness, because there's so much going on um, at City Park, um, is it true that you all are considering um, utilizing the lagoons as a way for increased stormwater retention? Absolutely. We are, um, through the city, the city received a hazard mitigation funding, you know, for a lot of different stormwater projects in New Orleans. And we partnered with them to provide the the land for a, a major $16 million stormwater project here. Um, Lake Vista and Lake View out in our area both drain into a large underground um, system on Robert E. Lee. And in these catastrophic rain events, Lake Vista kind of pushes back the water into Lake View. So that tends to flood Lakeview while Lake Vista is draining. So what we're going to do is take the water from Lake Vista and bring it directly across Robert E. Lee into the park. And, um, and that way Lakeview won't be 
uh, overcome, you know, during these events. And the way we're going to do that is, um, ex- like I said, some of the lagoons are so shallow. We're going to excavate the lagoons and make them, um, you know, deep enough so that they can be used for recreation. They're they're better environmentally for fish habitat and, and stuff. Um, and we're going to also probably extend some of the lagoons so that there's more opportunity to kayak a little further and things like that. And we're going to build a lot of rain gardens and, and wetlands in the park. So we're, uh, it will be going public with the plan. Uh, it's, it'll be at 60% in January. So I think we'll start having, however you do public hearings at that point. That's, that's <laughs> we're all trying to figure that out, Meg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yes, it is going to be very exciting because it's, you know, it's, it, there are just so many good things about it, environmental and as well as opportunities for um, for the public to have more access to the waterways. That that really is smart growth and improvement, right? And and I love that that y'all are thinking that way, and and it's important that y'all are thinking that way at the park. Um, okay, so Meg, we we need to know how we can help. Um, you know, we have friends at City Park. You have Celebration in the Oaks. I mean, what? Jock needs to sponsor a bench. I mean, his bench that he's always on. <laughs> I mean, what? How can we help? What's the best ways and where's the best place to go? Well, um, if you go on the at NewOrleansCityPark.com and all the way on the right, it says donate. That's a good way. Um, Let's start but, there. <laughs> yeah. In under under that heading, you know, there are all different things that you can do, and and that's also how you access the volunteer um, portal or whatever. And I mean, volunteering is so important out here. We we really need people to. Um, I actually have a great job for Jacques. We, uh, my husband and I, have been going in and clearing out invasive species in. Couturier, so there you go, Jacques. He's very trainable, Meg, very trainable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, put me to work. (laughs) Well, that's on that drop-down menu. You just click on volunteer, and I'm sure Tyler Havens, our volunteer coordinator, would love to have you. Um, But also Celebration in the Oaks, you know, one of the effects of the pandemic is that we can't do the walkthrough Celebration in the Oaks, but if any of y'all are as old as I am, you'll remember that it used to be a lot of fun to do the drive-through celebration of the Oaks. And people have actually been bugging us since Katrina. That would be me. Meet people okay. like me bugging you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, was all, I was OG celebration of the Oaks too. We would just drive through. So, oh, I, Well, I'm embarrassed to tell this story, but my children learn to drive sitting on our laps driving their celebration (laughs) probably a little dangerous but um anyway so that's the but you have to buy tickets that's the different thing you know we used to just be able to drive up to the gate and pay at the door but now you have to buy tickets in advance and I understand that you know it's very important to get your time. I already got mine. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> For like three weeks from now, because I was worried about the time slot being, um, being out. Oh. So, yep. I was first time ever I was on, I was on it. <laughs> well, good. And I tell you, that's, um, 
they probably will. It'll maybe the crowds will have dissipated. I did hear that there were some long lines to get I was in. Gonna, so, I was going to ask how it's been so far. Uh, been very popular, I would assume. I think, yeah, over Thanksgiving weekend, I think they were overcome. But I think as people get used to the, you know, the routine and the route, it'll it'll get better. But that you know, that's one of our biggest fundraisers of the year. So I'm hoping that people will, um, you know, will will come back, even though it doesn't look the same it um it it's still very important to the park that people do show up and and stuff so all of those things are wonderful you can joining friends of city park they have their own website and if you they have all different levels of uh, membership and if you um join city park you get other perks like i think you get a discount at cafe du monde you get a discount at the tennis center you um you know there are a lot of perks that you get if we go back to having the garden show in the spring, you get into the garden show for free. So there's a, a lot of things going on at the park that haven't, you know, that, that, I mean, they've been affected by the pandemic, but they're still open. Like we're still, we were having garden sales. I want to give a shout out to the Pelican greenhouse. They're growing a lot more native plants and they're trying to educate the public about, um, you know, how to incorporate native plants into their landscapes. Um, and that their plants are beautiful, and um, so that they may have one more in December. I'm not sure. That's if you go onto the website, just you can you can find all kind of ways to contribute. I know our producer Ryan's already been through celebration in the Oaks and said there's a few surprises. There's some throwbacks and and some new things. So that's really nice. Something to look forward to. Meg, remind us again of the website. It's NewOrleansCityPark.com. NewOrleansCityPark.com. Okay, so two more quick, quick things before we wrap. We have to talk about you being a master naturalist. <laughs> Tell, was it hard? Not hard? Tell us what, what drove you to do that. Well, I've just always been interested in that, particularly after coming to work at the park and spending time in Couturier Forest. And I tell you, it's just been a fantastic experience. Um, in fact, my husband and I did it together, and he's a lawyer, so he he didn't even uh, ever had never touched a like a spider or anything before that. But um, <laughs> it's um, it Bob Thomas at Loyola put it yeah, together. Yes, and, Bob's a friend of the show or a friend oh, of ours. He's wonderful, and uh, you go through. I think it's eight different you know sessions where you spend all day at a different facility, and I'm telling you, I have learned so much. Um, just about coastal issues. I mean, it's not just about bugs. It's coastal issues, native plants, land subsidence, um, you know, all invasive species, how, all the different things. And you go to different sites around New Orleans um, and learn, you know, just learn a lot. It's fantastic. And then you do volunteer work. You have to do, you know, keep up your, your status or whatever you do, um, education, hours and volunteer hours. So that's, that's why we've been going and cutting down invasive species. <laughs> 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 
I'm going to get Jacques a machete for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Some days you need it out there. Oh, yeah. But I I love it. I would encourage anybody that's interested in that kind of stuff. And and maybe you don't even know how interested you'd be, (laughs) but it's it's a lot of fun. Um, It's the Louisiana master naturalist program so they may have a waiting list by now it's gotten pretty popular but well we we love dr bob thomas he's a good friend of the show and um you know we've we've had him on before so couldn't recommend that enough um meg we have loved speaking with you we are so appreciative of the work that you and everyone um does at city park it truly is a treasure for so many people in the city um or people that visit Um, But we do have a tradition on Delta Dispatches, which is the fun question. Um, So I have a fun question for you. Um, What is your favorite character in Storyland? Or or you could also say, what is your favorite ride in the amusement park? Mm. Or both. Or both. Make or answer both. Make or answer both. Oh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Hmm. Let me think about that. I love the whale in, in Storyland. And Good answer. Good answer. Been, it's been there since my kids were little and my kids are 30 and 31. So um, yeah. I, I fell in the whale when I was like a little four-year-old. <laughs> oh, and no. yes, my mom was not happy. No change of clothes in the car and I was soaking wet, but it's all good. <laughs> have you been in there lately? I heard that they, they have like kind of noises and things like that that i don't know what what it sounds like but i haven't been in in a few years (laughs) it's been a while i think i took i took my niece a few years ago but yeah i definitely want to go back soon Uh, um favorite ride i i don't know Uh, maybe the music express although it's very loud and goes very fast but it's um it's kind of a fun uh ride if you like to get shaken up a little bit but (laughs) we've we've recently graduated we've had many um uh castle birthday parties but then we've graduated to the ride portion and Mm -hmm. my kids love music express and that is the one thing as a mom i refuse to do (laughs) that is what their dad is for and their uncles and cousins i will not ride (laughs) i'm not doing it Well, and you just think of the carousel. Yeah. The carousel is just so beautiful and old. And yeah. Anyway. Well, and the ladybug is still the ladybug. Although it's a lot scarier as an adult. So if you have a birthday party, you can have it just at the ladybug. And so we moved from the castle to the ladybug and then we moved to a cottage. But that's all the kids at the birthday party did was ride the ladybug oh, that's wow. it and so we had a ladybug cake and so there were some kids that not so much but <laughs> it's just scary enough i find i love yeah. it yeah it, it's a good one yes well thank you meg so much for being on with us it was such a treat to talk to you jacques thinks he has the in now and so he's gonna oh, ask for special perks and favors I want to see him in the raccoon outfit. In I'm the raccoon, not to be confused with the badger, just, but in the raccoon outfit, we definitely will. We'll, yeah. we'll see if he'll make that for Mardi Gras when, when he doesn't parade. He can do it at his house. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, well, thank you, Meg, for being on. Um, this has been a great episode of Delta Dispatch. It's a great way to come back, Jacques. I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I want to quickly wrap up the day so I can get to City Park since that, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, we've got a few hours of sunlight uh, left. But yeah, oh, it's really, 
beautiful time outside, but really great way to come back. Um, We'll have some more good shows for you before the end of the year. And then, you know, we're not slowing down anytime in 2021. So thanks for listening to us. Thanks to our guests, Meg and Alyssa. And we'll be back with you next week on Delta Dispatches. See you later, alligators.